Okay, so we're reading from Mark 4 today, starting at verse 35 and then moving through into chapter 5. So Mark 4:35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs, And in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. But Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people, what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. 
Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and she had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hands and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Thanks, Michael. Well, please keep your Bibles open uh, to that uh, passage. I'm going to lead us in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and what this uh, shows us and teaches us about the Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand and wills to put your word into practice. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why we are seemingly so fascinated with bad news? The uh, news reports, whatever form they come to us, how, what it, by whatever means, seems to be, seem to be uh, so often full of bad news. I mean, there, of course, there is the occasional, um, you know, fluffy good news token, fluffy animal story at the end of the, the news bulletin, or or maybe a, a good news sports report, depending on what you know Australia's been up to lately. Uh, but most news is, in fact, 
bad news. You know, stories of violence and crime and suffering and war and disaster and injustice and or some great scandal that's going on. It's often bad news. Now, why is this the case? Uh, you might have ideas about the, um, the psychology of consumer demand for, for bad news. But at, least, at the very least, I think one of the reasons that the news is often bad is because, well, frankly, the things that happen in this world are often bad. And it's not just out there in the, the, you know, the land of news reports. This is the world that we live in. We face these things ourselves. I mean, maybe we're, we're, suffered, sorry, we're sheltered from much of it, but we do suffer all sorts of things, sickness, conflict, tragedy, disasters, injustice. We, we live in this same broken world. Now, one response to, uh, that, that people have uh, when they face or experience these things can be to cry out, where is God? Where is God? Why is this happening? Why is God letting this bad thing happen? And if you've found yourself asking that question, I've been in conversation with people in the recent week where that's come around. Why, why is God allowing this to happen? For some, it's a real question that's, that's born out of a real personal uh, grief and angst. Where is God? For others, it's the, the reality of, of evil in this world raises for them a more philosophical question about the existence of God, which they, they, they then pose as an, as an obstacle to belief in God. You know, it's an age-old dilemma, the, uh, the problem of evil. It goes like this, if, if God is all good and God is all powerful, well, why does evil exist? I mean, in fact, the existence of evil shows, according to this argument, that either God is not all-powerful, that he's not able to prevent evil, or he's not all-good, that he doesn't want to prevent evil. How can the all-powerful and all-good God allow evil to exist? Now, that's the, the great philosophical dilemma of the problem of evil. And uh, the philosophers amongst us can, can debate the various arguments and discuss it over morning tea later on. But the thing is, Jesus wasn't so much interested in philosophical arguments. He, he didn't sit back in his ivory tower in heaven hypothesizing about the existence of evil and the threat that it may or may not pose to God's existence or his goodness or his power. No, Jesus stepped into this broken world, this broken, decaying world he stepped into it he walked amongst it he faced it and confronted it and this is what we see in today's passage in the the situations that Jesus meets he confronts this world of decay we see that in in a number of ways uh, at the end of chapter 4 Jesus faces the hostile environment uh, the environment of, of a wild storm they're at sea, they're, his, his, his life, the lives of the disciples are under threat. They're in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee. And we read verse 37, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. This is a serious situation. Could well have been the end for them. And you can imagine that the Galilean news headlines, 12 drown at sea while leader sleeps. Jesus comes into this world and he meets a, 
meets a hostile environment. Uh, he meets hostile powers. Next chapter, chapter 5, he's confronted by a man with an evil spirit. Uh, now, Jesus had encountered uh, other evil spirits, but, but this was taking it to another level. This, this man was uncontrollable evil. Look there with me, verse 3, it says, This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. I think Mark is, is highlighting, making an allusion back to chapter 3, verse 27, to the one who is strong, who is strong enough to subdue the strong man of Satan. Jesus meets and confronts hostile powers in this world of evil. Thirdly, he meets a world of disease. This woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. I mean, that's, that is long-term suffering. It says there that she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors in verse 26. Costly doctors who she'd spent all her money. She's impoverished too. And instead of making her better, she'd actually gotten worse. Now, this is a woman who had suffered much. Uh, not only the physical illness, not just the bungled medical treatments, not just financial destitution, but on top of that, as a Jew under the Old Testament law, in Leviticus 20, uh, 15, it said that she would be regarded as being ceremonially unclean because of her condition. She would not have been able to participate in life at the temple. She would have been an outcast from society, not only regarded as unclean, but anyone who touched her would be regarded as unclean. Jesus meets this, this woman who's suffered much. He meets this world of disease. And he meets death, the greatest enemy of all. Jairus, this uh, synagogue ruler, his 12-year-old daughter was, was dying. And this is tragic. His daughter was dying. One of my children um, many years ago was... Um, was quite sick, took um, a number of months to, to diagnose it and to, to treat the illness. Um, I was never really fearing for their life. Um, uh, and they, re they did receive good medical care, even though it took a while. But I got a glimpse of the, the horror, the horror of seeing your, your child fade before your eyes and being unable to do anything about it. How great it would have been the grief for Jairus. His daughter was dying. Jesus meets this world of death. And in each of these situations, the thing that is striking about these situations, the significance of it is, well, is the horror of it, firstly. They're, they're all horrible situations. They're, um, they all threaten life. They all bring death. Uh, and they're all... Um, they all involve fear. Notice that, that, that theme that runs throughout, the, the, the fear. In uh, 4 verse 38, the disciples are in the boat. Uh, they, they would be experienced sailors. Many of them were fishermen. They, they knew what they were doing, but they're fearing that they're going to die. They say to Jesus, verse 38, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Death was a real possibility for them. It was a likely outcome. They were afraid. Uh, Jairus, the father of the, the, the girl, receives the news that he's his little girl is dead Jesus says don't fear don't be afraid just believe I mean th this situation gives him a lot to fear but not only the the horror and the fear 
of these situations, they would have had a huge social impact as well. As I said, this woman would have been regarded as a social outcast, deprived of, of human touch. The man among the tombs, unable to function in society, a threat to society. They, they try to chain him up. And the obvious social impact on the family of Jairus as they face the death of his daughter. These are horrible, fearful situations with a huge social impact. And furthermore, they all involve uncleanness. As I said, under the Old Testament law, certain things would make a person be regarded as ceremonially unclean. They weren't allowed to approach God's temple. They weren't allowed to participate in religious life. Now, it wasn't that those things were in and of themselves somehow immoral. Uh, rather, it was a whole system of life that taught that God is holy and we are, un are unholy. And our unholiness matters to God. It's a problem between us and God. And as we read through these chapters, there's a lot of unholiness in this chapter. I mean, as I said, this woman with her bleeding, any sort of discharge would make, that, make a person be regarded as ceremonially unclean. Uh, Jesus touches a dead girl. In Numbers chapter 5, verse 2, it says, if someone touches a dead body, that makes them ceremonially unclean for seven days. This demon-possessed man who had a 5, verse 2, an impure or unclean spirit who lived in a Gentile area, a non-Jewish area, where Gentiles were by definition unclean. He lived among the dead, an unclean place to be. There's a large herd of pigs there, animals which were Leviticus 11 verse 7 regarded as unclean. This is the world Jesus steps into, a world of horror, of fear, social destitution and spiritual uncleanness. And really this is, this is today's world. This is the world we live in. Our world is plagued by horror, by fear, by conflict, by injustice, disaster. Satan is at work in this world, deceiving people, leading them away from God. We face disease, sickness, cancer, and over us all hangs the shadow of death. This is our broken, decaying world. Now, this may not be the, the happy, upbeat story that we, we like to hear, but friends, this is the reality of our world. This is the reality of the world that we face, and we need to hear that. We need to face that. But we need to re realize it's not how God created this world to be. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 2, we, it gives us this idyllic picture of life in the Garden of Eden where, where humanity and God and the creation live in, in harmony. But that picture was shattered by the rebellion of humanity in the next chapter, Genesis 3. And rebellion against God has been the state of our world ever since. Our world is now subject to death, to disease, to the devil. We live outside of Eden. We need to understand that so that we can understand what it is that Jesus did. Because wonderfully, Jesus, the Son of God, came to us, to this world outside Eden. And he showed us his power he showed us his control his control over this world firstly notice their control over nature in uh, 4 verse 39 it says he got up 
rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. I mean, that's, that's power. That's control. Have you ever tried that? Last Monday night, we were hit by a terrific storm about 4 a.m. I was tempted to go out in the backyard and say, quiet, be still. Um, But yeah, I don't think it would have really done much except made a fool of myself. That's extraordinary. Jesus has such power, control over nature. And he has control over over evil. When he meets this man with this legion of, of many unclean spirits, there's no question of who's in charge of who's going to win, Jesus is is in complete control. He has control over disease. I mean, he's able to heal this woman with with the touch of his cloak. He even has control over our greatest enemy, over death. He takes the the hand of Jairus' dead daughter and says, little girl, get up, and she gets up. Jesus is in complete control. And secondly, he cares. He's not just all powerful, he's he's also all good. I mean, the the disciples ask an important question of Jesus in uh, 4 verse 38. You know, the boat is nearly swamped, they're facing death. And they say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Uh, More literally, it's don't you care that we are perishing, that we're dying? It's a big question. I think Mark's put it there deliberately. It's it's one of two things that they say in this episode. As Jesus steps into this world of of, of hostility, of disease and death, does he care? Does he care for those who live under the shadow of death? Does he care? Well, the answer comes as a resounding yes. He cares. He's able to save people and he does save people. He delivers them from the shadow of death. He does care. And he shows that. And yet it's a, it's a hidden display in that not all see. Even the disciples aren't, aren't sure. In uh, 4 verse 41, they're terrified. I mean, they've, they've seen Jesus' raw power in calming the storm. It says they, they were terrified and, and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And they're still working out who Jesus is. Uh, similarly, the, the neighbours of the demon-possessed man, when they meet Jesus, skip over to chapter 5, verse 15, it says, When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. That. They, they don't see who Jesus is. They, they want him to leave. Please, please go away, Jesus. Uh, skipping to the next chapter, and he, even his hometown reject him. Yeah, over in chapter 6, verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Not everyone sees who Jesus is, but some do. The disciples, even in their question, who is this? Even there, they're starting towards the answer. They say, even the wind and the waves obey him. Who has control over the wind and the waves? Well, according to the Bible, for example, in Psalm 65, verse 7, and Psalm 89, verse 9, 
God is the one who controls the seas. Which is why this incident is so terrifying for the disciples. They start to realize that God is standing before them in the boat. And we know this of Jesus because we're told. With the man who had been demon-possessed, Jesus tells him over in 5 verse 19, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And uh, so Mark adds, So the man went away and began to tell in the the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. Mark's making the connection for us. Who is this man? Jesus is the Lord God. So then how do we respond to Jesus as as we meet him in the pages of Mark's gospel? Well, there are two responses that are highlighted here for us. That of fear or faith. See, many who met Jesus uh, saw something of his power and authority and were, were fearful. Uh, the disciples in the boat, they were terrified. They were terrified, not of the storm. I mean, that, that had gone, that had been dealt with. They were terrified of Jesus and the power that he holds. Again, the, the neighbors of the demons, this man, when they came to Jesus, saw this man who'd been so out of control, sitting, dressed in his right mind. They're confronted with Jesus' power. They fear him. Please go away. Can I trust you, Jesus? I think it's safer to, if I don't, please leave. And likewise, the woman in 5 verse 33, knowing she'd been healed, it says, she came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He's fearful of Jesus. What, what, what will happen? This man has power. Will he be angry that I, I wanted to, him to heal me and I, I snuck up and touched him? What's your response to Jesus? Are you fearful of him? Not sure what I think about him. I think it's safer to keep him at, at arm's length, not get too close. I think the clearest response to Jesus and that tension is is with Jairus. In verse 35, it says, While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. Don't fear, have faith. That's the the right response. In the face of disaster, disease, the devil, even death, Jesus says, don't fear, have faith. What is faith? It's a, um, I think faith is is commonly misunderstood. Um, It's it's often thought to be a, a leap into the dark. Now, when you can't know something, well, that's where faith kind of comes in and you just leap into the dark and have faith. That's how it's kind of understood. It's seen as the opposite of reason. You know, this seems reasonable, but I'm going to have faith and do that. That's unreasonable. Um, That's not what faith is. Faith is simply trust, reliance, dependence. Uh, That's what it means. To have faith in something is is to trust it, to rely upon it, to depend on it. 
And it's actually not an especially religious word. It just means trust. We, you know, we could substitute the word faith for trust. And we trust all sorts of things. I mean, at the moment, you're all trusting your chairs. Your faith is in your chairs. Uh, you're trusting that your chair will hold you up. Was it blind faith when you sat down on the chair? No, it was a reasoned decision to trust or to have faith that your chair would hold you up. I mean, every other time you sat on these chairs, they've proved themselves trustworthy. Faith is about trust. It's about relying, depending. Uh, and furthermore, faith always has an object. And actually, the object is the thing that's, that's most important. That's more important than the faith. You don't just have faith. You have faith in something. In the case of sitting, your faith is in your chair. The chair is the object of your faith. And it's not your faith that's holding you up. It's the chair that's holding you up. If you're not sure about that, just try sitting on your faith without the chair and see what happens. Faith always has an object. We trust someone. We trust something. And so the question is whether or not, so the question of whether or not faith is reasonable, is rational, well, that depends on the object of the faith. Is it reasonable, is it rational to have faith in Jesus, to trust Jesus? Well, that depends on whether Jesus is trustworthy, whether he's faithful. If he is, then trusting him is not a leap in the dark. It's actually a reasonable thing to do. It's rational faith. The last thing about faith is to say that everyone has faith. Everyone has faith in something. You either have faith trust that Jesus is the Son of God, or you have faith, trust that he's not the Son of God. Either position involves faith, involves trust. It may be rational, reasonable, maybe based on good evidence, reasoning. It may be irrational or irreasonable without any thought of whether or not it's a reasonable position, but everyone has faith. Everyone trusts something. So what about us? What about you and me? Who or what do we trust? Do you trust that Jesus is the Son of God? Because if you do, then he can save you. Like this woman who suffered so much in this broken world, Jesus said to her in verse 34, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The, the word translated healed there, it's the same word for saved. Your faith has saved you. Uh, same back in, in verse 23, actually, where Jairus um, uh, says, come so that she will be saved and live. In verse 28, when the woman wants to touch Jesus' clothes, she says, if I, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be saved. Your faith has saved you. Jesus brings salvation to this woman. Freedom from her suffering. But greater than that, Jesus brings eternal salvation to all who trust him. Not long after this, as Jesus hung dying on the cross, the religious leaders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. The irony is that in that very act of not saving himself, of giving up his life, of yielding himself to death, in that very act, he did save others. He saved us if we trust him. Saved us from the condemnation that we deserve as he took that punishment and brought us forgiveness. He saved us. Jesus stepped into this world of decay, of disease, disaster. 
of demons, of devastation, of death, and he dealt with it. He saved us. So what's the message now? Well, Jesus didn't take away all of the horrors immediately. In uh, Mark chapter 5, he calmed one storm. He freed one demon-possessed man. He healed one woman. He raised one girl from the dead. He didn't immediately reverse the whole nature of this world. The horrors of this world remain. But he does give us grounds for hope. Real, profound, certain hope because Jesus has opened the door. He's shown us something of the, of the new world that he brings. And by his death and resurrection, that, that one great act of reversal, the kingdom of God has begun and it will one day reverse the decay of this world. That means that we can now face this world with our faith in Jesus. As we suffer in this world, as we, as we suffer the, the effects of this fallen world, that suffering doesn't need to undermine our faith because the all-powerful, all-good Jesus has dealt with evil. He's opened the way into his kingdom. One day when he returns, he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth, a place where in the words of Revelation 21 verse 4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is passed away. Friends, until that day, Jesus says to us, as we live in this broken world, as we live under the shadow of death, Jesus says, as he said to Jairus, don't fear, just believe, have faith in me. So is your faith in Jesus? If it's not, be warned, one day Jesus will be someone to fear when he comes in judgment against those who oppose him. But if it is, then as he said to that woman, he says to you and me, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Yeah, we still live in this decaying world, but we live knowing that we're forgiven before God, that he's with us by his spirit, that death is not the ultimate enemy that stands against us and looms over us because Jesus has defeated death. And so we need no longer fear, but rather believe. Praise God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, that he has entered into this broken world of rebellion and decay, that he's walked amongst it, that he's confronted it and overcome it. We thank you that Jesus is all-powerful and all-good and he's worthy of our trust. Father, strengthen us, we pray, in the face of sin and suffering to put our trust in Jesus, to know the sure and certain hope of salvation that is ours in him. Help us not to fear, but to believe. Amen.